Hi, everyone. I'm Brad Stone, Senior Executive Editor of Bloomberg Technology, and you're listening to Bloomberg Studio 1.0. I'm excited to guest host this episode, sitting in for Emily Chang, and found my conversation with the nicknamed Godfather of Silicon Valley fascinating. John Hennessy sits on the board of directors of Google's parent company, Alphabet, after serving as the president of Stanford for 16 years. Some of Silicon Valley's best and brightest were educated under his watch, including Google co-founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin. He's perhaps best known for helping to develop a technology known as RISC, which won him the prestigious Turing Award, also known as the Nobel Prize of Computing. Today, more than 99% of all new chips use the RISC architecture. Joining me today on Bloomberg Studio 1.0, Alphabet Chairman, Director of the Knight Hennessy Scholars Program, and author of a new book, Leading Matters, John Hennessy. John Hennessy, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Brad. Delighted to be here. So I wanted to take you all the way back to Huntington, New York, where you grew up, and ask you, who was your first leadership mentor? An early mentor for me was actually a high school math teacher who happened to be an Ursuline nun, who uh, at, at a parent-teacher conference said to me, John has a fine mind, but he has a lazy mind. Wait, why were you at the parent-teacher conference? Well, because you, they, they actually brought... I guess she wanted to deliver that message in front of me, I think. Um, but she, it really sent a message to me that it wasn't good enough to just be smart and have a good mind, but you really had to work hard. At a young age, you become a professor at Stanford University. And you write in the book about how that was really the realization of your dreams, right? Until a Silicon Valley pioneer named Gordon Bell uh, basically convinces you and, and some of your colleagues to commercialize some of your microprocessor designs. It becomes your first company, MIPS. How did he convince you to go and take that risk of becoming at least a part-time entrepreneur? There was a digital equipment corporation had an experimental project on the West Coast, but it didn't manage to translate to the East Coast where the head of the company was. So he just said, look, this technology is too disruptive. If you don't go with it, it's just going to get put on the back shelf because it disrupts too many existing business models and too many existing product lines. He said, you've got to start a company to go do it. And eventually, we agreed with it. You eventually sold the company to Silicon Graphics, but you had a number of CEOs in the 1980s. What did you learn from the leadership that you witnessed, some of the instability at MIPS before you had the nice exit of selling it to SGM? The first thing I learned was uh, I didn't know anything about starting a company when I started a company. I, I knew some of that. I knew I wasn't financially capable. But I also realized I didn't know how to judge or interview a CEO. So we learned the hard way um, that sometimes, and sometimes you simply, you have a CEO, they're good for a period of the company, but then the company grows and it needs new skills and that CEO may not be the right person anymore. Okay, so in the late 90s, you have a pair of students, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, that bring you a prototype of a search engine. Yeah, so Larry, Larry and Sergey, just as they are today, were really creative guys who like to think outside the box. They uh, came over to show me a demo of it, and I was just astonished. Because when, at that time, we had other search engines. In fact, I thought, well, search, you know, it's kind of done. There's AltaVista, it's a very good web crawl, there's InfoSeq, there are all these other ones out there. The problem was that you do a search for John Hennessy, you get a whole string of hits, not necessarily in any order. In fact, often ordered by the number of times that the text string John Hennessy appeared in a document. So I typed it in. 
So wait, and your your first Google things. search is a vanity search? Yeah, I know. <laughs> what I wanted to do was I wanted to see whether it would find, for example, a paper of mine, and if it would find that as high up on the list. The person who was president then was Gerhard Casper, and I remember showing him the search, and he was upset because sometimes when you do a search for Gerhard Casper, occasionally you get a Casper the Friendly Ghost site, and for a, a, a constitutional lawyer, this was not a good thing. This is not what search should do. So he types in Gerhard Casper Stanford and right comes the presidential website at the top of the Google search list. So I realized they had really made a breakthrough in terms of quality of search. So I want to fast forward now to February of this year when you are named non-executive chairman of Alphabet. You know, after the company had basically been run for 20 years by this extremely strong triumvirate of Larry, Sergey, and Eric Schmidt, were you reluctant? Did they have to convince you? I believe deeply in the company. I believe deeply in the people that work at Google and the technology they've built. So from that perspective, it was an honor to, it was an honor to take the job. But certainly we had to have a, a talk about the role and how we saw the board evolving over time. How do you work with you know, Larry, who remains the CEO of Alphabet, but who gives the independent CEOs of the divisions like Sundar Pichai at Google a lot of independence. Well, certainly we spend a lot of time with Sundar because the core Google is the majority of the business by a long shot. So a lot of our time is spent there. Larry is really doing what he wants to do, which is inspiring the other vets, um, the other parts of the company, and trying to play a role in keeping and pushing the innovation in those parts, while of course he still spends time advising and helping uh, Sundar out. But we split our time between those things and other parts of the company we try to hear from periodically as well. There's a sense, and perhaps it's an incorrect one, that Larry's a little bit invisible. You know, is that is that a, an incorrect assumption to say that he doesn't have the same role or he's really hands off? Oh, I think Larry has very much an inside role. I think he sees himself both as a, a capital allocator to those individual divisions, but also somebody who's keeping track of what kind of progress they're making. Are they hitting milestones? Are they missing them? Is it time to double down on this bet? Is it time to remove this bet? The interesting thing about Larry is he still likes to drill deep into these things. So he likes to go into one of the bets and spend a lot of time understanding the technology, see what innovations are there. Is this technology going to make it? Is it going to grow? Is it going to be important? We mentioned this kind of bubbling topic of employee activism in Silicon Valley, and it's, it's impacting all of, of tech companies. But it's been particularly prominent at Alphabet, where employees have made their voices heard about things like contracts with the Defense Department and uh, more recently, you know, these allegations of, of sexual harassment. You've had experiences with students at Stanford, but did this manifestation of kind of bottom-up activism at Google catch you off guard at all? Well, I think it's different. You, know, you expect students, certainly, to be engaged in this kind of activity. It's less common among employees, but I think, I think Google encourages people to speak out and to really participate in, in helping shape a great, a great work environment. So what can you do in this kind of situation, other than just Dialogue. listen to them? Listen. That's the first thing, is listen. You have to listen. Um, and I think that's one of the things I learned at Stanford along the way, just, just listening. And sometimes uh, where there's smoke, there's a little fire. If you listen early enough, you keep it as a small fire rather than let it get out of, uh, out of control. There were recently uh, news reports about kind of alleged 
uh, uh, cover-ups or payoffs of, of sexual misconduct at Alphabet. And Sundar, you know, wrote a wrote a note to the uh, to the company, you know, saying that it, these were hard reports to read um, and pledging that the company had done things differently. You know, what what did you make of those reports? And and is Alphabet a different company than it maybe was even three years ago? Yeah, I can't comment on the individual details of the reports and what happened and the people, but I can tell you that. There is a very different policy in place. It's been reviewed by the board, and the board gets periodic reports on what actions that have been taken under that policy. So I think we've concluded that that is something that requires attention at the highest level of management. And as Sundar said in his, uh, in his letter to Googlers, uh, there have been a number of cases uh, prosecuted under that, and people have left the company, including higher level management. I mean, how did you feel reading that because those were some of the decisions around around for example android creator andy rubin that i presumably kind of you were involved with at the, at the time i think we were we were uh you know at the time i think uh things were a very different situation not everybody was aware of things and i i don't know the exact i can't comment on the exact details of what happened at that time um but i think we realized that the policy needed strengthening and that was the goal, to get a stronger, more aggressive policy. And I know, personally, um, my position has always been that these things are intolerable and that you create a, a workplace that's hostile uh, to women uh, or to other people for the way there's discrimination or harassment. Uh, you're going to have a weaker workplace. Google employees are upset and, and they're making their voices heard. Well, what do you say to them? I say to them, we have to do better as a company. You're listening to my conversation with Alphabet Chairman John Hennessy. Up next, Hennessy's take on why he's uncertain about Google's future in China. I'm Brad Stone, and this is Bloomberg Studio 1.0. You know, there are some business leaders, you know, like Jeff Bezos at Amazon, that have said it's kind of their patriotic duty to go and, and help the U.S. government. And at Google, you've gotten some pressure from employees not to do anything with the government that might conflict with the company's values. So how do you view walking that, that fine line? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough line to work, walk, and I think we all agree with that. Figuring out how to navigate it, uh, figuring out how to think about what role they're going to have and what role employees are going to have. And, and quite frankly, um, ensuring that even that technology you're going to work on is going to be used in ways that are effective and agree with what your moral values are. At the same time, it doesn't appear that the technology companies in, say, China are asking these sorts of questions, right? And so at Google, how do you view the patriotic duty to help the U.S. military, to furnish it with the tools that they need, and also to ensure that you're not hurting Alphabet's business by drawing a line that, other, that some of your competitors might not be drawing? Yeah. Well, I think that's a good question, and I think the answer will, is one that I think the company will have to struggle with over the next few years. China, what's your view on the opportunity and then the risk that you might be compromising some of the company's values? I think it's something we worry about. I mean, do anybody who does business in China uh, compromises some of their core values, every single company, uh, because the laws in China are quite a bit different than they are in our own country. The question that I think comes to my mind and that I struggle with is, are we better off uh, giving Chinese citizens a decent search engine, a capable search engine, even if it is uh, restricted and censored in some cases, than a search engine that's, that's not very good. 
uh, and does that improve the quality of their lives? And that's the struggle we have to we have to work our way right. So can you can you do more good by being there even in a compromise? Correct. I think that's. And the do you know the answer to that? I, mean, I don't know the answer to that. Because you were there, I, you were there seven or eight years ago. I don't know the answer to that. I think it's a I think it's a legitimate question in asking how can you do it um, and still live within the context of what they're their regulations are. What does it tell you about the political climate these days, or perhaps the empowerment that employees are feeling, that even as this search engine was in a prototype form, yeah. the news got out and people were wringing their hands and debating it? Part of what um, is reflected inside Google, as it is everywhere in the Valley and everywhere in our country right now, is the divisiveness that exists in our country. And I think that divisiveness has fed more concern about how these technologies get used. The search engine aside, if, if Google were to introduce cloud tools in China, you'd probably, as Apple does, have to store data inside the country. Is that something that the company should be doing? Does that, does that worry you? If you wind back to the time when Google decided to exit China, there were lots of things going on, not just, uh, not just censorship, but also... Potential the, surveillance. Yeah, surveillance, hacking attempts, things like that. And those all added together to create a situation. You know, we're in a, d a different time now, asking how you do this, how you make it safe. Um, but you're right, if you store data in the country, um, it, can be, uh, it can be gotten at by the Chinese authorities. Does, it, does that make you feel uncomfortable? I, I think you should worry about it. I, at a minimum, you better make sure that your users understand that. Speaking of the divisiveness, we, we do seem to be in the midst or even in a trade war uh, with China. What, what would be the potential implications for Silicon Valley or for Alphabet in particular if it really, if the hostilities continue or even get worse? I think in general trade wars are not productive and they're not economically productive either. And we should try to uh, remind people of that and find a way to move forward. Governments around the world, but it, it seems particularly intense in Europe, are now viewing the tech companies much more skeptically. What's the correct view in dealing with governments who seem to have you know, the lowest possible impression of the company and its, and its business motives? Look, I, I think every company owes users a clear set of policies around privacy and security, and, and we should have those and make those clear. Um, and then our, we need governments to also help policy. I think we, we have a whole. I mean, and I, I'm, I have to admit that I'm somewhat leery about government passing laws and legislation because I look at uh, our copyright law, which is still stuck in the last century, the last two centuries. Um, and so we've got to be careful about how we sculpt out, but some regulations about what the rules are about privacy and security would probably help create a level playing field for all the tech companies. They'd know what their obligations are. Do you worry that innovation or even like aggressiveness in terms of acquisitions has been curtailed? Like, for example, if Google were to announce a big YouTube style acquisition tomorrow, I would have a hard time seeing that approved in this current political climate. Well, I think it's always been the case that acquisitions have been potentially curbed by antitrust concerns. And to the extent that uh, any of these companies were to do an acquisition that would further strengthen their hold on a core market, they'll get questioned by the FCC in that case. And that's appropriate. One of the changes in Europe as a result of an EU Commission uh, rule is that Google's now charging uh, phone makers to use things like the Play Store and Google's apps. How does that impact Alphabet's business in, in Europe? I don't think we know really how it'll impact it yet. I mean, clearly it's a change. 
Um, we thought we were doing the world a favor, creating a free and open operating system. How do you see that impacting the Android ecosystem? The big concern for Google about Android was that it would be forked. And instead of getting one consistent operating system, one target for applications developers, we would get lots of versions of Android which would then defeat the value of the ecosystem. But more of a risk perhaps in places like China than yeah, elsewhere Yeah, China is certainly world. a risk, yeah. but it could happen in other places too if people don't want to pay the, the cost of getting Android. That was my conversation with Alphabet Chairman, Director of the Knight Hennessy Scholars Program, and author of a new book, Leading Matters, John Hennessy. Coming up, John gives leadership advice to current and future leaders of the world. I'm Brad Stone, and you're listening to Bloomberg Studio 1.0. Stay with us. I know it's only been you know less than a year since you took over as, as chairman of Alphabet, but do you think at all about what you want your legacy at Google to be? We'd like to see the company continue to deliver high value to users. In the end, my a mindset about any leadership role is it's a service role. You serve the Google employees, you serve the shareholders, you serve the users of the company, you serve the community in which you live, and you serve them with a long-term perspective, things that the company is focused on and how they're going to shape it over time. So with Phil Knight, you recently started the, the Knight Hennessy Scholars Program. Um, you talk in the book about, uh, about agreeing with Phil uh, about feeling like there was a little bit of a crisis in leadership. Where do you see the crisis in leadership right now? Well, when I started the program, I thought it was Washington was in bad shape, and then things got worse. Um, but I don't, think, I don't think we've done so well on the corporate side either. We've had a number of recent uh, corporate events in the Valley, as well as certainly going back to the financial crisis. We didn't have the greatest leadership in the world in some places. Um, so there have been repeated cases of it, even, even in some of our universities. We've had things where you question the quality of leadership and the determination of the people at the top of the organization to do the right thing for the, for the company. I remember this iconic photo from, I think it was about 2011, of a bunch of Silicon Valley executives having dinner with Barack Obama. You were there with John Chambers and John Doerr and Mark Zuckerberg is sitting right next to the president at the time. Uh, Steve Jobs was there, uh, unfortunately looking very frail. And I just wonder, and I'm talking about the current president, would that kind of meeting be possible today? It was an exchange of views. I think we, um, interestingly, we had uh, pre-met, and we asked Steve, to, Steve Jobs to actually take the lead on it, and we had decided as a group the number th one thing to focus on was immigration reform. Well, here we are in the middle of still having this discussion about immigration reform. I remember leaving that um, dinner after hearing the president speak about the challenges, um, thinking, boy, things are really broken deeply in Washington because the issue of Dream, the DREAM Act, for example, had become political football. There was a version of the DREAM Act that both sides would accept, but neither side would agree to the compromise that was needed to get that version in place. The irony is that if things were broken then, unfortunately, they they're, look they're more fractured now. now. They're more well, fractured. Well, part of what's changed is you know, the likelihood that the president would come down and, and, and sit down with tech leaders. But the other thing is that the impression of Silicon Valley has changed so dramatically over the last just two years. Unfortunately, it doesn't appear for the better. I think what's happened is the rise of social media has meant that everybody is free to publish. 
Instead of getting a greater exchange of ideas, unfortunately in some cases we've created echo chambers where people can go to a set of sites that tell them things that they already agree with and already believe in and don't challenge them and perhaps even don't convey the facts as accurately as, as one would really like them to. So I think it's, it's a reflection of the divisiveness in society. It just makes it, anybody can publish now, publish their well, ideas. Well, how much accountability do the business leaders here have for creating um, platforms, and in some cases social networks, without a lot of uh, care and caution about some of the unintended consequences? It's a tough balancing act because um, you know, while the tech companies are not um, required to support First Amendment rights, there is a general societal belief that they should support First Amendment rights and people should be able to be free to speak and put their opinions up. Balancing that against trying to ensure that people hear facts and hear a variety of opinions. That's why news sources are still so important and curation, curated news sources are going to continue to be important. Do you think there's been a failure of leadership in Silicon Valley? I think there's been a failure perhaps to anticipate some of the consequences of, of what's happened. And technology races along fast. I'm not sure any of us would have gotten it right. But perhaps, perhaps some warning signs uh, that things were devolving were missed early on that could have at least uh, tempered the situation somewhat. There are uh, some kind of canonical leadership qualities here in Silicon Valley that have been prized for so long. You know, certainly Steve Jobs and his brashness, you know, is one, along with his creativity. Mark Zuckerberg, it's almost epitomized by the phrase, move fast and break things, right? Did we prize the wrong things here for too long? I think long? we did. I think move fast and break things was fine when you were a small company and you had a very small impact when you broke something or even when your impact was confined to one spec sector, right? You're impacting other technology companies. When you're impacting the American public the way these companies do, at the scale they do, breaking things have, has many unintended consequences. And I, I think we need another mantra. Well, a lot of the tech companies that, that we write about are, are very good at things like tax minimization, tax avoidance. So what is the responsibility of Stanford University, you know, this, this gem of higher learning in our community that has instructed these very visible leaders, uh, Larry and Sergey and, and Kevin Systrom and Evan Spiegel at Snapchat, in crafting a set of leaders that take things like ethical leadership and a service mindset into account. When we redid our undergraduate curriculum about six, seven years ago, um, we introduced an ethical reasoning requirement in for all undergraduates. And the motivation was exactly that one. You've got people going into leadership positions in technology, in medicine, in po politics, in the corporate world. All of them should have some ethical training. And I think in particular, Brad, what we wanted to emphasize is think through a framework for making decisions which may have an ethical component. Because if you haven't developed a thought framework for, for doing that, what tends to happen is you get to the crisis point, you've got to make a decision quickly, you don't have a framework for making it, it's too easy to make the wrong decision then, then that brings you partway down the slope. Now you've got to make another wrong decision to fix that one, another one, and the next thing you know, it's an avalanche. For the potential entrepreneur who, who's watching this, for the student who's going to school uh, next year but has dreams of starting a company, like what, what is your advice for the next generation of leaders? The first thing I, I ask them is why they want to be an entrepreneur. And if they tell me they want to make a lot of money quickly, I, said, that's the I tell them that's the wrong reason. Then I ask them to tell me about either their 
novel business model or their novel technology or the two of them going together. Many times students will come in and say, I want to be an entrepreneur, I want to be an entrepreneur. I said, tell me about your technology, tell me about, well, I don't have it yet, but I want to be an entrepreneur. I said, well, come back when you have that technology, when you have something that really is disruptive and is going to create uh, new capability. Is entrepreneurship still in vogue? Do you still get a lot of students? Oh, uh, it's still in vogue. It's still in vogue. There's still a lot of um, r rush to the new thing, whether it's blockchain or, or cryptocurrency or ICOs. One has to stand back and say, okay, where, what are you going to offer that's really an opportunity? I think the social entrepreneurship movement is actually getting stronger because we're doing a better job of preparing social entrepreneurs to be successful, to scale their effort, and to have a larger impact. Well, John Hennessy, chairman of Google, author of Leading Matters, and former president of Stanford, thank you for joining us on Bloomberg Studio 1.0. Thank you, Brad. Bloomberg Studio 1.0 is produced and edited by Kevin Hines. Our executive producer is Candy Chang. Our managing editor is Danielle Culbertson. I am Brad Stone, Bloomberg Technology Senior Executive Editor. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.